This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. And today we celebrate words, ideas, and cleverness with a New York Times bestselling author of a dozen critically acclaimed picture books that include Dragons Love Tacos, Those Darn Squirrels, and High Five. His latest titles include The Ice Cream Machine and The Human Kaboom. On this episode, we discuss how AI is shaping the future of creativity. He tells us a story of entering a public laughing contest when overseas in Japan, and he invites young authors to join him with their stories in his latest book. He refers to himself as a good writer with bad penmanship. Welcome, word wizard, Adam Rubin. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 Thank you for having me, Pat. So how bad is the penmanship? It's a not so secret shame that I wish my penmanship was a little better, but I, I don't wish so hard that I'm willing to do anything to improve. I don't know what you can do. There's probably a course online. Aren't we living in a day where you don't have to do it? Like AI will fix your grammar and it'll fix the spelling and maybe the penmanship's part of it too. The only time I think about it is when I'm inscribing a book to a kid and I want what I write to them to have gravitas and profundity. <laughs> but it looks like a third grader scribbled it on the back of a bus. So you are self-conscious about it. Like internally, you're, you look at it and you go, oh, I really wish this more of a Picasso signature. If I write in all caps, it's more legible, certainly. But there's like part of my brain thinks, oh, it's charming that your handwriting is so indecipherable and, and strange. But have you ever seen somebody just longhand write something out that just, it's just beautiful. It looks like somebody, a letter somebody sent in the Victorian age or something. And there's a sort of magic to that because being able to take your words and put them in a form that is visually beautiful, I think makes whatever you're saying, like singing, uh, seem a little more important than it, it might be. I have seen that. And you hire people like that to f make out your wedding invitations. <laughs> sure, exactly. I, I, I used to fly a lot. And I remember this guy sitting in first class. He was clearly a road warrior doing many flights a week. And he had this trick that he would do where he would ask the flight attendant their name. And then he would write their name in this very elaborate floral calligraphy on the napkin from the plane and then give it to them. And every time, I'm sure it was the same as the one I saw where the, the person was very touched just by seeing their own name written in this beautiful penmanship. Well, it is funny that there are all kinds of little tricks that can be done in writing. Like there are people I know who can read upside down because they would go into their the office of their boss and they had to be able to see something on the page upside down. You know, I mean, there are people that can write backwards. There are people who can write a name frontwards and backwards, and it's a trick. And I know that you're, a, uh, you're an optical illusion guy, so you must know that thing I'm referring to. I do, I know the guy you're referring to. His name is Scott Kim, and he is a master of ambigrams. He calls them ambigrams, which are words that look like one thing upside down and either a different phrase right side up or the same exact phrase when you flip it 180 degrees. He can do mirror writing where if you place a mirror in the middle of the phrase, it reflects 
back on itself. He did the titles for, I think it was Angels and Demons, that, that Tom Hanks movie. And when I met him, we were just casually talking and he was only half paying attention. And he did an amigram of my name, just like right there on a piece of paper and pen. He's got some figure ground illusions that he's done with people's names where the black lines make their first name. And then the white lines, the negative space behind those lines makes their last name. Really astounding typographical sleight of hand almost. I think he sees the world that way. It must come very natural to him. At a certain point, the mechanics are are like seeing the negative area and that sort of a thing must be a real talent. Yeah, I think he has some sort of broken wires in his brain that allow him to do it. <laughs> now, you've done some clever things. I remember you handing me a business card once that you had spent a great deal of time developing. It was printed to essentially, it was stippled or something, but I could see through it. It looked invisible. And then when you flipped it over, the writing was there and it was kind of a, I mean, a great optical illusion, but how much time did you spend designing that business card? One of my mentors is a guy named Mark Seti And Mark is a toy inventor, a magician, a designer. He, he taught toy design at SVA for many years. His book, The Magic Show, I think is one of the greatest examples of magic book for the lay public that's ever been created. It performs magic for the reader. There's 10 tricks in the book. You sit there, you open the book, and the book will astound you with these tricks that are inexplicable. You're sitting there and this piece of cardboard is, is fooling you. It's pretty amazing. And I believe it's the best example of that sort of approach to a magic book. Mark always told me that the best thing he ever invented was his business card. His card is, it's like a shiny black paper and it doesn't seem to have anything on it. You realize it opens up and when it opens up on the inside face, you see a bunch of backwards writing and on the opposite face, you see a mirror, like a piece of reflective mylar. And you have to realize that if you fold the card, if you just close it, so it's not quite closed, but it's not quite open, you can see right into the mirror and read the backwards writing, which says Mark Sedducati. And you can imagine that makes quite an impression on people when he gives it to them and then tells them he's a toy inventor. So I was always jealous of Mark's card. I really wanted to do something unusual. I wanted to have a calling card. It's such an old school idea now to even hand somebody a physical object, but I came across this material. Everybody thinks it's a wow gimmick. All the magicians think it's a wow gimmick, but it's, it's not quite as simple as that. It, it was not being used for that purpose in any way, but I realized this is it. I don't know if that company's in business anymore, but hopefully I've got enough of them to last the rest of my life or until I sell the domain whothehell.com. Well, here's what's great about it. It makes an impact. And in the business that you're in, I know that we're going to talk about a lot of things today, but I know you as a very smart, clever designer, magician, optical illusion guy, but clever, right? You're a crafty guy. There's a, you've made a handshake with the devil somewhere along the way. And uh, in whatever platform you choose to do something, you do it with some cleverness. I mean, that's something you're known for. Yeah, I think about this word. I've noticed that I hear that word, clever, a lot. It always makes me think of Jurassic Park <laughs> when the raptor opens the kitchen door, you know, or the freezer door. <laughs> I think clever is like, oh, it's a little, a little smarter than you might expect. That's what I think clever is. Well, I think it is a positive word. To me, it might mean making you look twice at something because just as you described that business card with the mirror, it's a puzzle at the same time as it's practical with information. And it's something that instead of just stopping, once you possess it, you kind of want to show it to someone else because you think, oh, th there's something happening here that's worth sharing. So I'm not trying to double back to make clever sound crazy. I feel like the things that I have been the proudest of and whether they were a play or something, there was some little hook in it. There was something in it that made it 
more than a play or more than a sitcom. Just by spending a little bit more time on it, instead of trying to be like things I saw on television, it was like, well, how can I best that by enough that it's original? In several of your books, you have fun, interesting hooks of how it's illustrated or how it functions. In The Ice Cream Machine and The Human Kaboom, you're using the same title for several stories in a row. And this is something where you sort of crowdsourced the storytelling through children. So rather than me tell it, maybe you can explain how you approached it. To back up a minute, a lot of people listening to this, probably if they're if they're aware of my work at all, it's, it's likely Dragons Love Tacos, which is a picture book about dragons and having a party with dragons. It's one of a dozen or 13, I think, picture books that I've written over the past 15 years. And the kids grow up, the kids that would read the books and I would start meeting them and their voices were deeper than mine and they're taller than me and I was like, huh. And I started thinking as I'm talking to these kids, because I, I, I get to talk to the kids, like when the book comes out, they'll send me around, I get to meet the kids in the, in the schools and stuff. And I try to be as honest with them as, as possible. And as the kids get a little older, what I really want to tell them is that while reading is fun, and I, I do want them to read as many books as possible, as long as I'm there in person, I'm trying to get them to express their own creativity, to try to make the case that creating your own stories, writing your own stories, choreographing your own dances, making your own recipes, that there's there is a lot of value in that. Whether you ever become a professional chef or dancer or writer, just creating stuff, taking what's in your imagination and putting it out into the world, I think is an exercise in empathy. I think it, it makes the world a more interesting place to live. And so with the ice cream machine and the human kaboom, I was trying to address the question I got most often from aspiring young writers, which is how do you get started? And for me, I always start with the title. That was how I started all the books I've ever written, the books that I haven't finished writing, the books I'd like to write someday. It starts with a title. And that title could lead to three different ideas or four different books. In some cases, it has. So I guess what I wanted to say is it's just an excuse to get started. You just need any excuse to get started. And then once you've started, that's when it, it really begins. And the trick with the ice cream machine, the human kaboom, is that I wrote all six stories with the same title, but they're totally different. And at the end of the book, there's an invitation for the reader to write their own version of the ice cream machine, the human kaboom. And my, my hope was they go, oh, well, this guy wrote six. I could do one. If they're going to take the trouble to write it, I wanted to read it. And so I asked them to send it to me. I gave them my address. A lot of them did send it to me. I got like 700 stories from kids all across the country from the ice cream machine. And then when the paperback came out, I published some of my favorites in the paperback edition. So now these kids, fifth grade, seventh grade kids are nationally published authors in a best-selling book, which is pretty cool. That's oh, really cool. Well, among other things, it empowers them and it builds self-confidence because you wouldn't put it in there if you didn't think it wasn't worthwhile. I flew out and met these kids because I thought, how could I not, right? So I flew out and met all these kids that got published and some of them, absolutely, I could see the effect of the confidence boost and the notoriety just within their school or their parents would tell me. And some of them were, are very quiet and in real life, but on the page in their writing, they're wild and, and, and exciting and hilarious. So I was glad to be a part of that and to connect with some of those kids because I was like that when I was a kid. I think a lot of future confidence in creating comes from being a kid and getting the approval or the acceptance or the laughter. It can be the smallest thing. It can be a teacher choosing you to do a solo. It can be getting a part in a play. It could be any number of things. But it's that moment where somebody says, I believe you can do this. Do you remember the first time an adult said to you, you're funny? I remember a few times. I remember my first joke, writing my first joke. And the laugh? Well, I did get the laugh. I don't. It wasn't like a big group laugh, 
But I remember the joke was essentially that my Mr. Potato Head got run over by a lawnmower, and I was going to start calling it Mr. Hash Browns because it was scarred up on the side. But it had a structure of a joke. And that's an original. Yes. Well, and the funny thing was, is it sounded like a comedian's joke. It had a punchline that ended and begged a response. I think that there's a certain age you reach, I don't know if it's in adolescence or like when you're in middle school where you're like, I'm the smartest person alive. You know, like nobody knows better than me. And all it takes is one adult to go, hey, maybe you're right. And then for the rest of your life, you're like, I'm hilarious. Or, you know, I can draw so well. And that confidence can carry you through. It really can. Well, but since we're talking about laughter, I want to take a sidebar. Because I did see on your website when I was perusing around in 2014, when you were traveling with some friends, you ended up as a part of a, a ritual. There was a laughter ritual going on in Japan. And you guys wandered up to what was considered to be a laughing competition. So I would love you to tell kind of what was going on there, how you approached it and how you ended up entering the contest. I had a friend that was a lawyer in, in like a big corporate law firm when we were young, when we had like graduated college. And I guess they do this thing in big companies where they trade employees for a year. They're young, you know, they want to learn about a different culture. They like bring, I don't know what, why they do it, but they do it. So my friend got traded for a Japanese guy. And they sent my friend who didn't speak a lick of Japanese to Osaka, Japan for a full year. And he nearly lost his mind because he couldn't talk to anybody. And he's like the most outlandish, uh, you know, gregarious guy. So it, 12 months into it, when he was about to leave, I went to visit him. And at this point, he spoke almost fluent Japanese. I mean, he was dedicated. He was motivated to really communicate with people. And he had been planning for a year, all the things he wanted to do before he left the country. So we went on this epic journey across Japan and went to all these different cities and went to all these different festivals because I didn't realize, but they love festivals. I think a lot of countries, and maybe you don't realize when you live here, but festivals are the best thing to go and visit when you're a tourist because it's just, it's just weird stuff is going on. It's an eggplant festival and, and a panda festival, all these weird things. And there was this one place in Japan outside of Osaka where they were having a laughing festival. There is something called laughter meditation, I guess. And through the physiological response your body has to laughing, the same way you feel a little better if you force a smile, I guess laughter is the same kind of thing. Well, it, it produces endorphins. And I, you know, those endorphins, I think, function in your body chemically. Yeah, I've heard that anecdotally, but I didn't realize the extent to which some people follow this philosophy. And so I knew we were going to a laughter competition. I was really hungover. We got off the train in this rural part of Japan. And as we're climbing this hill, I hear, ha, 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 ha. At first, I thought it was some sort of bird or something or a flock of birds. And as we crested the hill, I saw a sea of a thousand people laughing in unison as some sort of meditation exercise. And my understanding is it was Christmas morning, right? I believe it was. I don't know if those people were celebrating. I don't know if Christmas morning was relevant to them. I don't know if they were even aware it was Christmas morning, but it was certainly a big day for them because they had traveled far from far and wide to be there. And one of the events of the day after the guided laughter meditation was a laughter competition. And I'm still not exactly sure what the rules of this competition was because I don't speak Japanese and nobody there spoke any English, but we were there as a group. We somehow got entered into this competition. I think they just thought it was hilarious. We were there in the first place. They got us into this competition. They put us on stage. They put a couple wigs on our heads. And I now know there was a bell that they were ringing. When the bell rang, you were supposed to laugh as hard as you could. So they ring the bell, we start laughing. And at first we're forcing it because What's funny about it, but pretty quickly after that, we were really were laughing our asses off because the situation was just so surreal. <laughs> My friend took his shirt off. You know, they, they're they decorating us as we were up there and they were laughing. Everybody's laughing. I'm not even 
sure if we knew it was a competition until they gave us the prize. <laughs> well, it was really a fun thing to stumble across because it can be seen on YouTube. And so I did see all of that. And it really does look like you're having a great time. The story read three American men with a selfie stick discovered the Shinto lab professor were completely hung over and ended up winning the prize. <laughs> and that's a great moment in life for all the accomplishments that we might get a an award for to just be with friends and discover a, something unusual that you will laugh about for the rest of your lives that moment is to be treasured in that anecdote and your appreciation of it is this great tension that i i know i wrestle with and i'm sure a lot of the listeners wrestle with too which is you know photos or it didn't happen like when you're in those kinds of moments I know for me, I always think like, put the phone away, be present, enjoy it. But at that moment, like in that thing, we had that selfie stick, we had the video going. I don't think it dampened the experience in that particular instance. And it certainly has brought more joy to a lot of people that got to watch it on YouTube. There's a lot of views on that video. But I do think about that sometimes, especially when I'm traveling, because you, you find yourself in these situations where it feels like if you take that phone out, you've ruined it. You've ruined your responsibility as a traveler or like, you've become the other all of a sudden, but maybe that's not true. Maybe that's just my old fashioned way of looking at it. Yeah, I, I have mixed emotions about it too. I mean, what's funny is the evolution of photography that it used to be that somebody else, you'd hand your camera to somebody if you needed a picture in front of the Grand Canyon. Now I've been at things where I said to somebody, can I take that picture? And they looked at me like I was gonna steal their camera. They're like, no, they would rather have their forearm in the picture and their fat head covering the monument than to have somebody else take their picture. It's so funny you say that, Pat, because I find myself, it's spring here in New York. It's beautiful. The magnolia trees are in bloom. The calorie pears have started to bloom. The cherry, cherry blossoms are out. And every so often I walk by this tree and the colors are so vibrant and it's so pleasing to me that I can't help but take a photo of it. What does that photo do? Does it communicate the beauty of that tree to anyone else? Does it even remind me of the beauty later on? Do I remember? Is it a totally futile gesture? I'm not sure. But the other day I was admiring a magnolia tree and there was this old man who was admiring the same tree, but he had this really beautiful camera, a really fancy camera with a big telephoto lens on the front. And he also had some sort of nerve disorder. So he was aiming this camera with a very powerful zoom at this tree and it was shaking around like he was beating a, a bowl of eggs. I mean, really just swirling all over the place. And I'm thinking, when I take a photo, is it any more accurate than what this guy's going to wind up with on his camera? So did you look at his camera at all? Did you see what the image was? I didn't see the image. I imagine they're really swirly. I don't know how he could have been taking a photo that didn't turn out blurry, but I felt awkward. And so I hung around and offered a few times, uh, can I help, you know, can I take a photo for you? Can I take a photo for you? But he, I don't know if he heard me. And then finally he did hear me and I said, would you like me to take a photo? And he looked at me like I was insane. He's like, well, I, I know how the camera works. It's my camera. So to try to save face and not make either of us feel awkward, I said, would you like me to take a photo of you with the tree? He did not. I've asked people in public places, do you know what time it is? And they said, don't you have a cell phone? It's like, I just want to know what time it is. I don't want to be judged whether I have a phone or don't have a phone. It's, it's a really weird thing how we're expected to be. Our cell phone is our pacemaker, right? It's our camera. It's our email. It's, it's everything. And so therefore we're self-contained. Just Google it. I go, I, but I want information from a human being. Like I don't, I don't want my friend to be the box. The cell phone now it's like after dinner cigarettes. Used to be you have the big meal, everybody sits back, pushes their chair back, right? Unbuckle your unbuckle your belt, start smoking a cigarette. 
And now it's the, everybody, you know, check out what they missed in the last 30 minutes while you're reading. Yeah. Also, I find storytelling has changed. Not all of it, but yeah. people almost can't tell you a story without showing you the image first. And that's really weird. It, it, it is a, a little disappointing. It's easy to be the old man shouting at the clouds about the cell phones <laughs> and the, oh, cultures isn't what it used to be, blah, blah, blah. But Man, on some level, I really believe that to be true. I guess that's what, when you start getting gray in the beard, that's when you know. Well, since we're talking about storytelling, let's talk about your stories first, because you've had a number of different stories, Robo Sauce, Big Bad Bubble, Those Darn Squirrels, Dragons Love Tacos, you mentioned, and its sequel, Secret Pizza Party, High Five. So you're approaching these, as you said earlier, from a title standpoint, but also you are dealing with illustrators. Uh, you're using one illustrator quite a bit, but what's that relationship with from story to illustration? Are you working along the way? Do you finish writing it and then turn it over? Tell me a little about your process with that. It depends on the illustrator. And this is true working with a writer and an illustrator or a writer and an editor, or any, any type of creative collaboration that I've been involved with. You find everybody's got their idiosyncrasies and, and you work together in different ways. Sometimes it's more fun. I find the more collaboration, the more fun it is if you trust the person's sensibility, which is hopefully gonna be the, the case in any kind of good creative collaboration that you trust the other person's sensibility and respect that they will do whatever their role is better than you ever could. Otherwise you get into this weird power struggle or, but I like to share, I'm, I'm a sharer. So if I'm working on something and I'm working with someone specifically that I think has a great sensibility, I want their feedback. I, they, they have great ideas. When I've done, I've done the ice cream machine, the human kaboom, each of those stories and each of those short story collections had a different illustrator. So that's like 12 different illustrators right there. And working with each one was different, but the ones I had the most fun with were the ones that I send them a, a draft and they would say, Hey, what if I, I was curious about this, or I, I was thinking about this, so what if this happened? And I go, well, thank you so much. Right. And hopefully they return the favor when they, they share the sketches that they're open to suggestions or ideas or questions. Those to me are the most fruitful collaborations. The one where you can have that open exchange of ideas throughout the process. It, it's, it's weird. And maybe most people don't know this, but 90% of the picture books you see, the illustrator has never met the writer and they've maybe they've never even spoken about the project. The uh, publisher kind of acts as a go-between to keep them siloed for whatever reason. Yeah, that's an unusual thing for, that most people wouldn't know. The book you wrote, El Chupacabras, so this was a book that was English and Spanish hybrid? That's right. Yeah, it's, it's translingual is what the educators call it. So it is written in a blend of Spanish and English so that you can't just read the English and you can't just read the Spanish. So if you don't know any English, you're gonna learn a few words and a couple phrases from reading this book. And the same is true if you don't know any Spanish, but it's totally agnostic. It's not a predominantly English book or a predominantly Spanish book. And if you don't speak a word of either one, you can read this book and totally understand the story. And hopefully if you're paying a little bit of attention, like learn some new words. In that book, you collaborated with uh, illustrator Crash McCready. Tell me a little bit about how his prowess and how that came about. Was that a publisher? Crash is an amazing artist. Yeah, Crash is a is an old pro in Hollywood. He does creature creation and like production design sort of stuff, behind the scenes imagination, generating visuals and characters. And he's been working with the best people in Hollywood for many, many years, Gore Babinski. And he's worked on all the Jurassic Park films up to a certain point. And I don't know how many they've made now, but like back in the day, he's, he's, a, he's an amateur paleontologist and he knows a lot about dinosaurs. And he 
creates these really wonderful creatures and villains and monsters. If you've ever seen the movie Rango, that was his big project that he designed from top to bottom, all the characters, all the landscapes. And I think you can see a lot of that influence that is important to him, the Southwest, the kind of desert Mexican, California border, that experience he had being there is definitely obvious in the, the art, artwork for El Chupacabra, I think. Did you select him or was he put together by the publisher? Our agents knew each other and thought it would be a good, a fruitful partnership. And so we met up when I was in California and we talked and he's like, he's in California, he's wearing like dark sunglasses, black leather jacket, smoking Marlboro Reds. Like he's this, this kind of, he's got a bit of a, like a surfer vibe, cowboy vibe. He's such a cool dude. I go, I, I, I want to work with this guy. He's so cool. So we did this book together. We, we won a Blue Bonnet Award for it, which was fun because we got to we got to go out to, to Texas and, and meet with a bunch of the librarians there and talk with them about why we made the book the way we did. Yeah, I hope I hope I get to see him again soon. I haven't seen him in a while. What percentage of time, when you get into that cycle of promoting a book, how much time are you spending at libraries, schools, bookstores? It's kind of grown over time. It used to be they would send me on a week if they did that. The first, I don't know, eight books, I had a day job, so I never went on a book tour for any of those. And then I think it was RoboSoft was the first time I ever went out on the road. And it was about a week, I think. And then I guess people liked it. It was, it, it, it helped sell the books. And then it was two weeks. And then nowadays it's about, a, it's about a month, not necessarily fully on the road, but from, hey, I think about that episode in The Critic where he's like, buy my book, buy my book. It, it does feel a lot like that. The nice thing about the most recent books is there's a great thing to talk about, which is not buy my book, which is, hey, write a book of your own. And that makes me feel a little less like a cog in the wheel of capitalism. Yeah, it is hard, though, because in order to be a full-time author, you have to be making money. Something has to pay the bills. And we we become the brand. As the creator, the book or the play or the movie is the event, but it's kind of like a band. you got to have a new album. you got to go out in front of the people. Yeah, I don't know how it works, to be honest with you, Pat. It's It's different than it's ever been. I think it's harder than it's ever been right now because I don't want to shit on the publishing industry too hard, but I think the pandemic, they were really worried that everybody's going to stop buying books. And it turns out everybody bought way more books. People love to read. There's comfort in it because it's an escape from the glowing screen that tells you all the bad news all the time. So people do find refuge in books. And the thing is, most publishing companies, they don't really care which books sell. They don't care if it's the books they've been publishing for 20 years. They don't care if it's the new author. They don't care if it's a known author for the most part. Like I said, I don't want to shit on the entire publishing industry. And I like all the people I work with at Penguin Random House. So if you're listening to this on the off chance, you know. No, let me broaden it out too, because it's it's somewhat all industry that's powered by, you know, revenue. Well, it used to be, not, not used to be, but pretty recently you could get a toehold with social media get some followers on Instagram. And I know some designers and illustrators who like, they were popular on Instagram and they go, well, shit, I'm going to write a book or draw a book or do this. And they had the following. And now all of a sudden they're their own PR machine and people are buying the book because they like their stuff. And the publisher is just printing essentially. And they still kind of expect that to, it to work that way, that people are going to do their own publicity and attract their own audience. Except now everybody's following this TikTok model of the algorithmically dr driven content. It's so hard to earn a following that's consistent you're only as good as your last video. And so you don't have an audience. People are going to Mastodon. Twitter's all fucked up, you know. And you gotta, by the way, you have to feed that machine. You, as soon as you stop feeding that machine, you, you fall off the, the radar, right? So that's also weird. I have a friend who teaches illustration. 
BFA and MFA level illustrators. And he's like, yeah, I guess try reels, try posting reels. Cause you just don't get the engagement with images the way you used to on Instagram. It used to be, if you were a great photographer, you were a great illustrator, designer, keep posting. Like you said, keep posting and eventually the audience will come. And now because they've changed the way discoverability works so much, it's really hard. Yeah. And I do, I've seen comedians succeed by cutting their dry bar special up into 55 pieces and putting 15 seconds of reels at a time. And they have grown their audience from thousand to 500,000. And once you can do an end around on the industry of the club or the agent or the booker, it's, it's liberating for those people. I think it's true at this moment for video creators. I think right now, if you create video, you're in a pretty good spot, especially if you create short videos. But if you make static images or you're a writer, I don't know what's the platform for you. I guess I would ask your opinion about this big growth in AI, but I mean, the notion that people are using the chat GTP or whatever that is to describe something that they want to have an illustration of, or they're saying, write me a speech on this topic. And for the most part, it can aggregate information and it can dump something out. Doesn't feel to me like there's humor or heart in that. You know, I think I think the chat GTP, chat GPT is like your smartest friend, high on cocaine that doesn't have a tongue. They can't taste anything. They have no idea if it's good or not, but they will not stop working. And if it's out there, they will synthesize it. You know, but like it's a mirror that you you put something out into, you get something back. And so there are people they call them prompt whisperers with the chat GPT and also with the open AI or the, the one that makes all the creepy nightmarish imagery, but the point is, if you know how to whisper to the prompts, then you get better results. But the fact of the matter is, it can never really replace the experience of writing something for yourself or drawing something for yourself. Noam Chomsky had a, he was interviewed about it recently, and he said, this is, this is a way to avoid learning. There are plenty of people who would like to do that, to cut out hiring a writer, cutting out an illustrator, and they're happy with the results. Yeah, that's totally fine. They have, you, you can only judge based on your own taste level. There are people that they, they get an iPhone 11 or whatever, and they go, I'm a great photographer now. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. All right. But when you look at their photographs, you say the quality of this image is high technically. <laughs> right. And, and, and maybe that's the thing. I'm not worried about it, I guess is what I would say. I wouldn't be because you know what it doesn't have? Cleverness. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting to me. Like with the big campaign, uh, there's an app for that. Everybody was, you know, that was their way. There's an app for that. There's an app for that. But when it comes to empathy or giving a human hug, good luck, right? There's not an app for that. So if we give up on it, then that's our own fault. But I do think as you talk about a prompt whisper, it does require somebody who can communicate and who can get an output. And even from that output, they can make an adjustment. So yeah, it's a shortcut. There's no doubt about it. I don't know. To me, it's one of those things where uh, the danger is a lot of clever people lose some work. When they took literary critics out of the paper because people were crowdsourcing reviews or doing National Geographic, I know still has high-end photography, but a lot of that they have moved to people who are travelers who send in a picture on their iPhone and that's sufficient for the story. So it's cost efficient for them. I'm not, I'm also not crapping on national geographic who puts out an amazing thing, but there are people who are high end photographers, as you said, or writers who, if they don't write on somebody's e-magazine, they got no work. Well, the, the tough part about it, and I think this is true of a lot of things now, is it's, it's becoming harder and harder to tell what's good, 
quotes, capital G, right? There's so much stuff out there because it's been totally democratized. You want to make a video? Used to be, right? You needed all this very expensive equipment and lights. And, and now you press a button on the thing that's in your pocket. You're making a video. Photography, the same is true of writing now. You want to write a novel? Okay, you can. You can write a novel. The, the AI will do it for you. Do you want to edit a novel? I'm not sure. That takes a little bit more effort, but it doesn't matter because you can have the novel finished. And the thing that's anno more annoying about the chat GPT to me is it takes longer to digest that content. You make a, an AI image and I can look at it and in half a second, I decide if I like it or not. I can make certain aesthetic judgments. I can decide if there's any humanity to it or if it was fake. But with ChatGPT, you got to wade through that to even see if there's a soul in it. It's becoming harder and harder to tell what's real from what's bullshit. And that is tricky because those critics like you talked about, and I don't know how I feel about critics in general, but at least you got to say, that, well, they've seen the movies. They've read the books. At least we'd, we'd hope so. And then they form an opinion about it. You don't have an opinion. You don't need to have an opinion to write an entire essay on, on ChatGPT or a whole, a whole freaking book. I'm not saying that it's a bad tool. I think it's actually extremely valuable and I've used it already in my own work. It's just, it's like having, like I said, it's like having a Labrador retriever of a person sitting across from you that is going to just, is never tired. And I'll tell you this, the things that AI are great for, so many great things in terms of advancement is they are saving human beings time and effort yeah. when it comes to something medical or whatever you put a thing in there and it checks everything and it finds the right blood type and it does all of that it is our friend and in other ways that are are improving things exponentially people have to sleep that's the bargain we've got to sleep for a certain amount of time and ai is working when we're not working I guess the question is, what are we spending our time doing? If, if AI is used to avoid all the shit we don't want to do, and I thought the South Park about this was quite funny, where he's just responding to his girlfriend's texts with <laughs> respon AI responses, and, and they have a whole relationship, and he doesn't even know what, he's not even participating. So yeah, is it okay to send somebody a bereavement message that was written by AI because you're not sure, you can't find the words? Okay, fine. But what are you spending your time doing? Scrolling TikTok? Like, what What do we decide? And, and hopefully, I, I get a sense, Pat, that the pendulum is swinging back the other way. All these illustrators and designers and people that, that I know in, in New York who, for the past several years, have been focusing on, like, stick and poke tattoos or, or old school letterpress printing. Like, you know how cows lay down before the storm? Like, I think that the cre a lot of creative people are feeling this threat or, or maybe over technolization. Uh, that's not a word, but you know what I'm saying? They're kind of going back to this more tactile kinesthetic experience of making something with your hands. It's slower. You have to pay attention to it. You can't skip it. It doesn't happen on your schedule. Like it has to happen when it's, when it's happening. Maybe those things are anachronistic, but I, I do think the pendulum is swinging back the other way. It's nice to touch things. It's nice to smell things. Well, I think we see that with the chef-driven industry where it's made with a certain amount of uniqueness and love and something, and people will pay a little bit more money for that experience. Yeah, right. Like maybe that's a good analog because food, cuisine is the only art form that, that utilizes all five senses. So it's, it's going to be really hard to have any sort of digital representation of that. But you did something very clever during the pandemic as well. But you and Alex Boyce created a thing called the Bizarre Brooklyn Walking Tour. And I had the opportunity to go on that. You weren't yeah. you weren't present, but Alex was taking us around. We met at the steps of Borough Hall in Brooklyn. Right. And he took us on a tour, which included some history, some performance, some magic, some story. 
But what was really interesting was you came to the moment in time where we couldn't gather indoors. People wanted to do something that was an event. It, so it got us out walking, but it was uh, educational. It was entertaining. It had all these elements. And I know that there have been other successes. I know our uh, our friend in England, Noel, started that kind of a walking tour. Yeah, Noel Britton, we absolutely stole this idea from Noel. We talked to him a lot about it actually at the beginning when we were planning to do it. It was, Alex said, hey, Dr. Hooker, his house is is in Brooklyn Heights, and, and this is the location of a legendary magic trick that fooled Houdini, fooled Arthur Conan Doyle, like, is a legendary, extremely well-kept secret within the magic world, took place in an unmarked carriage house in, in Brooklyn that's now a luxury condo. So that was the inspiration, that was the impetus for the whole project, was to tell people about this. And everybody was doing Zoom shows at the time, and Zoom shows, I don't know, it's like it's like trying to eat a sandwich through a plastic bag. You just don't get a satisfying experience. In, in some very few cases, I think it, it, it broke through. But for the most part, it was a hard way to try to cons- consume art, I guess, or, or experience anything through that little window on the screen. But we thought, fuck it, let's just get out of the house. Let's. People were masked, and we we kept our distance, and we had headsets so that you could hear the music and you could hear us talking and we just went outside and it was really cathartic because, and I know this because we put a lot of thought into the script and the pacing of the show and it was a very complex theatrical kind of endeavor. But when we would ask people afterwards in the first few weeks that we did the performance, what feedback do you have? What did you like? What didn't you like? How would you describe the show to somebody else? Just trying to, trying to make it as good as we possibly could. And everybody said the same thing, which was, gosh, it was so nice to get out of my house. (laughs) (laughs) So the bar was very low, (laughs) but, but I hope we exceeded that bar to some extent. And it was a lot of fun. It was, it was just nice to see people again at that point in time. When the theaters opened, we stopped doing the show because it's much more fun to perform when everybody's seated and there's lights and everyone can hear you and there's, it can't, you can't get rained on. We'll, we'll get it back going again during the next pandemic. When it's time to review this pandemic on Yelp, I'm going to say one star. I did not, I did not enjoy this pandemic, <laughs> but I did enjoy that walking tour. I enjoyed coming out to a scenic view, uh, I guess, of looking across at Manhattan. I enjoyed some of the tricks that were great. They were foolers or they left you with a good picture. Uh, there was just a lot of moments where it was kind of a nice night out, right? It was just like an alternative night out, but it included all of the things that you want, which is you want elements of surprise. You want a story to tell when you talk to your friends. I imagine a lot of your attendees were word of mouth. It was all word of mouth. No, we didn't do any advertising at all, but people want to share a clever anecdote, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it takes us back to campfire stories. That's what we're using to fight against a, a complete AI takeover over is that there is something about a human to human moment when you hear a singer songwriter by a fire and you go my gosh this is really amazing this moment i don't worry so much about digital technology ruining the human experience i think it's certainly shortened our attention spans and i think it alleviates people's burden to remember anything right there's a different there's a difference between having access to the information and having knowledge so i do think that is is dangerous and we're all even the older ones among us are, are guilty of that but think about the during Christmas time, everybody puts that Yule log on Netflix and they think about that versus a campfire. It, it just, you can't, you really can't even compare the two. I heard the phrase comparison is the thief of joy. And I'm not saying that about the fire that analogy you just made, but I am saying it about 
when people are looking through other people's Instagrams and thinking their life is not satisfactory because they didn't go on that trip or they don't have that dress or they didn't eat that salad, we're, we're doom scrolling and we're also kind of trying to somehow, I don't know what we're trying to find. It, to me, anytime I find that I've spent 20 minutes looking for something to look at, I feel dirty and I just feel bad. You know, I'm like, I got to set this thing down. Yeah, it's convenience is very alluring and there are very powerful corporations using lots of technology and research and manipulative techniques to lull us into becoming obedient consumers of content, of products, of opinions. So you have to be an enemy of boring. You have to make the effort to be curious in a way that is not easy, whatever that means for you. You, you, you talk about creativity and captivity, right? We're not on a lockdown anymore. We're not sheltering in place, but we are being held captive by powerful forces. It's, it's healthy to revolt against them. And it's healthy to have a, a sense of anarchy, especially creatively. Yeah, I agree. And I would, I would be more dramatic and say hostage because what's interesting about what's happening, understanding that we are the product. As the consumer, we're being sold to the ad agencies and the everybody else. It's not the other way around. So their goal is to keep us on there and keep feeding us the things we like. And I like that book or that musical or that thing. It's going to give me more of those and it'll take me down the rabbit hole on YouTube or TikTok. So we think somehow we're managing the machine and we're actually the thing they're selling to the people who want more of our who we are. Well, on an optimistic note, one of the great pleasures of being a, an author for books of books for young people is I get to meet a lot of young people from first grade to eighth grade is usually the age of kids that I see. And the kids that are old enough to use social media are well aware of the dangers of social media. And when I told a couple of them last year that I was going to get on TikTok to try to help spread the word about the book, they were like, don't do it. You know, be careful. It's addictive. <laughs> and so I really approached it like... I don't know what, what would be like fireworks or something like you, you got to be very careful with this. Don't want to blow your hand off. Right. Don't want to look it in the face. Like be careful. It can be spectacular. And I did, I posted a TikTok. It got hundreds of thousands of views and the book sold really well. So, okay. I feel like I, I lit the fuse. I backed away when I'm wearing eye protection, whatever, but I don't scroll because that shit is intoxicating. Yes. I've spent very little time scrolling on there just because I don't want to train the algorithm to know what I like. I've been trying actively trying to only use it as a content creator. And yet, when I open that app and I scroll through it, all I see are adorable animals eating things. Right. And there's nothing I'd rather watch right. in this world. <laughs> I mean, how right. Well, listen, you're awesome. And I want everybody else to find out how awesome. I'm going to send them to your website. It's a good one, whothehell.com is the website where you can find out more about Adam Rubin, about his books about his partnership with the Art of Play. Just so many things we didn't even get around to discussing. But you know what the most important thing? If you know a kid that is a creative kid and they like to write, tell them to send me a story called The Human Kaboom. It could be about whatever they want. Just start with those three words, The Human Kaboom. They can write about Mr. Beast. They could write about Cardi B. I don't care. It could be long. It could be short. Send it to me. My address is on the website. There's even a short series of videos that will like help them if they don't know how to write a story or they need to get stuck at some point. In the process, they can send it to Penguin Publishing. I will get the story eventually, and I'm going to publish the maybe six or seven of the best ones that I get in the paperback next year. Yeah, and this is middle grade storytelling, right? 
Yeah, it could be however young, however young they want to send a story. If you're uh, in college, maybe maybe it's unfair <laughs> to submit to right. this. And no AI. That's the only rule we have. Yeah. Well, that'd be interesting. I haven't. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to know about that. I think maybe I'll be able to tell, but I'm not sure. But either way, AI assisted or not, send before June, and I'm going to start reading them this summer, and, and we'll decide which ones are going to go. Fantastic. All right. The hum, Human Kaboom is on with Adam Rubin. Go to whothehell.com to find out more. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for joining us. We know you have many choices in the podcast universe, so we appreciate you investing the time to be part of our creative community. Creativity in Captivity is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with support from co-producer Tucker Hazel, Boy Genius. This episode was edited by the Right Honorable Tanner Dykstra. Original theme song written and sung by Maya Sharp. Additional support and technical jiggery-pokery provided by Diane Johansson, Delilah Lovejoy, and Tony Deo of Ghost Runner Records. If you are inclined to rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends that need a weekly creative boost, we would be forever grateful. If you'd like to check out our extensive listening library of creative conversations, please visit creativityincaptivity.fun. That's right, I said dot fun. It's like a recess with the fun after the first period. See you next week. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty.